question that we are aiming to answer this morning is, why should we go? Um, it's, this sermon is being presented on the occasion, like I mentioned, of Luke and Karen's departure this week to Utah, where they're following the Lord with the belief that he's leading them to church revitalization. And we as a church are supporting and sending them to Utah, but the sermon isn't supposed to be narrowly focused on them. It's meant to address us all because God is sending us all in one capacity or another. So why would Luke and Karen go? Why would we go? Why would we move forward with a decision like this to be encouraged to send Luke and Karen? Or perhaps as God is working in your heart to go next door, to go to a family member, to go to a coworker for the sake of the gospel, for sharing the gospel. Do we go because there's a better paying job at the other end of the journey? Do we go because a state is more of a refuge to us? Do we go because it's going to be safer there than it is here? Do we go because the weather is nicer? Some of you do go for that reason, and we miss you for six months. Why would any of us go next door? If you look at this from a non-Christian way of thinking, the only reason why you would make a decision to go anywhere in life is because it promises something beneficial to you on the other end. There's a treasure chest of some sorts for you on the other end. But that's clearly not the biblical reason for going. In fact, when Paul looked at his past as a Christian missionary, he characterized it in the following way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. He says, "This five times I received at the hands of Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's Paul describing his history as a missionary, as one who went which in terms of personal benefit only brought him a lot of discomfort. To serve Jesus and to pour our lives out for him does not in any way guarantee us a more physically comfortable life. To take the gospel next door, to take the gospel to work, to take the gospel to another state does not guarantee personal comfort. So why then go? Why go to Utah for the purpose of the gospel? Why go to your family? Why go to the person whom God has put in your life? And one reason very simply for why we should go is Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus says, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In the Gospel of Mark, we've been looking at Jesus as a king who is bringing his kingdom. All authority has been given to this king. And what does he say with his authority? Go, therefore, or as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." 
So very simply, why should we go, whether it's to a person next to us or to a state halfway across the country? Why we should go is because when Christ comes up to his people and taps them, he comes and taps them with all authority in heaven and all authority on earth, and we in no way can rise up to that authority and say no. The only response to that tap from Christ to go as a Christian is, okay, yes, I will. But a second question is this, how do we go? And we'll spend most of our time on this this morning. How do we go? We go by trusting God. The verse that was read earlier, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, says this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. There's a couple phrases in there that inform us a little bit more on how we can go. When he says trust, he's saying trust him with what? Trust God with all of your heart. The heart is the deepest part of who you are. It's the control center. It's the combination of your emotions, the combination of your thinking, the combination of your intuitions. And so when God comes to you and says, here's what I have for you, and when God comes to Luke and Karen and says, here's what I have for Luke and Karen, He's coming with all authority to us saying it's time to go. But there's something that rises up within us. There's, there's a sense of caution. There's a sense of self-preservation. There's a sense of what if this doesn't work out the way that I have an intuition of. And here's where God calls each one of us whenever he sends us to come and trust. But to trust with that part of your heart that has all of these scrambling emotions saying it doesn't fully makes sense to me. Or there is fear that is kind of simmering inside of me. We trust him at the deepest level of who we are because of his knowledge. And then he goes on to say, when you trust in the Lord this way, you are going to put your trust in him above your own understanding, your own ability to know because our knowledge is limited. We can't see the future. We don't know how it's going to work out. We don't know the outcome of going places. We only know that when God calls us to go, we know that we have our emotions that might push back against it, kind of like the opposite end of a magnet that repels away from that situation. But God says, no, lean not on your own understanding in this situation, depend on me. Illustratively, you can think of it this way. A child who is being asked to jump and trust his father, to jump and land in his father's arms. You can think of a, a dad in the pool and a son who's on the pool deck and the, the dad is saying, go ahead and jump. Now on one hand, the son could be walking around on the pool deck doing physics in his mind. If I leap, from this pool deck, I'm going to descend 32 inches and I'm trusting 
the force of my father's arms to absorb me so I don't come down hard and that he lifts me. You know, all of that sort of intellectual stuff. But most kids on the pool deck aren't processing it that way. They're processing it in, I'm afraid. What if dad doesn't catch me? This doesn't make sense. But the dad is saying, go ahead, jump. Trust me, don't lean on your own understanding. Maybe a little bit differently, because that's an easy one. Here's a young man who's being asked by his dad to go out and work in a field under the sun for hours at a time. And the son looks at where he's been saying, wait a second, I'm more comfortable here instead of there. I don't see the immediate result of going there as I do here. I don't see the benefit of sweating out in the sun because I don't even know if I'll see crops come in. But the dad knows that the field needs to be plowed. The dad knows that this is going to do something in his son's life. The dad knows that this is best. So he calls his son out into the field and the son says, okay, I'm going to trust my dad. And so with any of us or with Luke and Karen, when God calls us to go somewhere, again, whether it's this week, next door, or whether it's to Utah, we go trusting the Lord with all of our heart, leaning into him, not depending on our own understanding as the ultimate authority, but trusting God's wisdom. And so the key word here is trust because God knows how it will go. He's all wise. We go with incomplete knowledge of the future, how it will turn out. The psalmist could trust because he knew who God is. He says in Psalm 91 verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So when God calls us to go, we're going, but we're also going knowing who he is. These terms here of refuge and fortress are terms that are used for protection here. In Psalm 115, you have this triad of trusting God. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Over and over again, we're told to trust the Lord with our lives. So when we're called to times like today, times to see a family rise up and go, or times when the Lord taps you and says, here's the next step I want you to take, we as the people of God trust him because of who he is. So specifically, Luke and Karen believe that God is calling them to Utah to revitalize dying or dead local churches. Let's press in a little bit more. How can we trust God in this today? Well, three ways in which we can trust God. We can trust God's plan for the church. We can trust God's plan for the church. Jesus comes to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 18, and he says this to Peter. He says to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this was Jesus' promise to this disciple. Peter was, in so many ways, the first disciple on deck to lead the church in Jerusalem. 
Peter saw that church in Jerusalem grow and explode, and he saw churches around the Mediterranean world take off. He saw Jesus' promise come to fruition that God would build his church. Now, you know, many of you know, that Jesus is talking about the universal body of Christ, the universal church, Christians in all places that make up one singular church. And that's true. But the universal church finds its expression in the local church. Each Bible-believing local church is an expression of the universal church. As Christians gather here this morning in Jesus' name, or as Christians gather in Utah in Jesus' name, believing the same gospel, singing and praying, carrying out God's will in their lives, we are expressing the universal church. So Luke and Karen, along with the elders of this church, believe that God is calling them to go to Utah to carry out his plan for local churches to be helped and built because Christ is building his church. He is drawing people to himself and the gates of hell are not going to squash the big church. So we trust that God has a plan to build his church. And so to send someone out for the sake of church revitalization is something that we get behind and say, okay, God, this is your plan. We trust you for this. Second, we trust God's plan for local churches. We trust God's plan for local churches. And in this way, we're trusting that God is doing a work in local churches to preserve the gospel and present the gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 8, Paul came to this church that was, uh, oh, he's writing to this church that he had planted perhaps just a year or two earlier. And notice what he says to this church. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Okay, so Paul planted churches in Galatia and just a year or two later, he's writing this letter to them saying, wait a second, something has gone terribly wrong in your midst. I'm astonished that you are so quickly turning away and believing another gospel. That's what happens in unhealthy churches. That's what's happening in churches all across the Tri-Cities, all across America, all across the world, where other gospels are being believed and held to. And so what's needed in those churches is a revitalization a repentance, a turning away from that error back to God. And so what is the charge to that local church? Paul says this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you in a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And here's what Paul is saying. The flashiest person could get up in front of you. Somebody with great oratory skills could get up in front, even if an angel from heaven gets up in front of you and starts preaching another gospel, let them be accursed, anathema, let them be put out from you. You have the responsibility to do that. And so God's plan through the church is that the gospel would be preserved. And this is why church revitalization needs to take place. 
When you think about folks being tapped by King Jesus to go to places like Utah where there's a dire need for the true gospel to be present, where an erroneous gospel has come in and presented itself as truth, there is a need for people to go there so that the light of the gospel shines through that darkness. There's a need for healthy churches. There's a need for churches to defend the gospel. So we trust that in this work that God is calling Luke and Karen to, we trust that this is his big overarching plan from his view, even for churches in Salt Lake City. We could continue looking at some of God's other plans for the church, but the point is simply that God has a plan for the local church, and to give your life to the health and well-being of the local church is a worthwhile step. It's a worthwhile way of pouring your life out in a way that matters to God. You think about Christ's example. He loved the church, and what did he do? He gave himself for it. So then we love the church. We love the local church. We love the people of the church. We love God's plan for the church. We give ourselves to it so that the gospel will be preserved and God will be honored and glorified. His plan continues onward. How do we trust God? Well, we trust God's plan for our own lives. We trust God's plan for our own lives. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay, so when we trust God's plan for the local church, here is the sending out that takes place. This is our kind of safe haven, if you will. We all have commonality. We have unity in mind about who Jesus is and about the gospel and about the truth. So we gather here on Sundays as a church family, but then Mondays through Saturdays, we scatter. And how are we supposed to think of ourselves as we scatter? Well, Paul says we are ambassadors. An ambassador is one who represents the king. The king from one place is now sending his ambassador to a foreign land. Wherever we go, we are ambassadors for our king, our king, Jesus Christ. That's our identity now, an ambassador, one who speaks on behalf of the king. Now you think about this. The world is very interested in who or what you align yourself with. There's political alignments that matter to the world. There's cultural parties that matter to the world. There's educational identities, athletic identities. The world wants to know what you lean into and what you represent. That becomes your identity. As Christians, our identity is settled in our hearts. We are Christ followers. And as Christ followers, we are commissioned as ambassadors for him. We align ourselves with him, and we speak what he desires us to speak. And so as we look at going out, whenever God comes to us, 
with all authority in heaven and on earth and taps us, we're saying, okay, it's almost like we're following him through life and he turns around and says, okay, Nate, I'm tapping you. I'm sending you to this place or I'm sending you to this person and I have a message for you to take to this person or to that place. And God right now has been leading his people and he's turning around and he has been tapping Luke and Karen and now he's sending them where? He's sending them to Salt Lake City. And what is their identity? Their identity is ambassadors. So they're representing Christ, King Jesus, in that place to speak what he would have them speak there. Now, Paul could do this, and he's trusting God in all of this. How could he do it? Several things come up in this passage. I didn't put them up on the screen, but just two things. He revered God. Earlier, it says, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. And it was within the context of saying, Someday I'm going to stand before God and give an account for my life. And so he goes, okay, I'm an ambassador for Christ whom I'm following. And not only that, but I know that I'm going to give an account for how I followed him. I want to follow him faithfully. And so he looks at God with this big picture saying, my life is not unto my own. My life is for you. I'm pouring it out for you. It, it, I, I'm, I'm accountable to you. And not only did he revere God, but later on in the chapter, he says that the love of Christ compels me to do this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So here he is following Jesus through life, and he's following Jesus because Jesus has laid down his life for the forgiveness of sins. It's the most expressive kind of love that we could ever have. It's the deepest and significant love that we could ever have. So here he reveres God, and now he's looking at this saying, his love for me controls me. He loves me so much that I'm willing to step out and be an ambassador. And the way that that happens is when we are thinking about what God has done for us through Christ regularly and being reminded of ourselves of the nature of our sin and then the overwhelming nature of God's grace that covers our sin. So this morning you might be here and you might be a non-Christian. You might not be a Christ follower. A Christ follower comes to Jesus and just recognizes that Jesus has laid down his life because of love in such a way where he offers his life, his perfect life of righteousness as a gift to you. And Paul, he was a chief of sinners. He's like, my sin needed to be covered up. And the only way that it was covered up was through the love of Christ. And that love compelled him to go. So God then sends out his ambassadors. And what I love about this is that God makes his appeal through the ambassador. It's God who's working through the messenger that's going. We don't have to be flashy when we go next door. We don't have to be cool and great. In fact, it's probably better that you're not cool and great because when people respond to the truth of what you're saying as a not cool, not great guy or gal, you know that they're actually responding to the truth and not your coolness. So Luke, just keep being you, okay? <laughs> just kidding, he's way cooler than me. But God has a plan. And so we surrender to him. He has a plan for us. And now, just thirdly here, we trust God's plan for the lost. This is encouraging to me. 
In John 10, verses 14 through 16, Jesus said this. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, here's Jesus functioning in the role as a shepherd. But notice where he moves forward with this in verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. In other words, there are sheep that have come into the fold yet, but he can say, I have other sheep that have not yet come in. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is referring to those who are not yet saved. And we can say not yet saved because Jesus says that he's going to bring them in. And for us, this is just an amazing hope that Jesus is continually bringing in those who are not yet in the fold yet. And as the great shepherd, he is not going to fail in bringing those in who are to be brought in. Another way of looking at this, Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are in the city of Antioch. And in verse 48, the conclusion was this, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people. One of the encouraging truths that should undergird gospel evangelism is God's sovereign electing grace. Because God is going to do the work to bring people in. And as those who are ambassadors going out, we say, wow, if God is doing the work to bring people into himself, he's inviting me to join him. And what I get to do is just surrender. And he's tapping me and saying, okay, go over there, go over there, go over there, speak to this person, speak to your family member, speak to your neighbor, go over there and speak. Because I have a plan to bring in more people. There are some who are not yet of this fold who need to be brought in. There are some who are appointed who are not yet saved. There are some in this city who have not yet believed, but they will. And as Christians, it's like, wow, this is God who's doing the work. I don't have to, like, twist people's hearts. I don't have to convince them in such a way that brings them to their knees because God is the one who does all of that. What I get to do is just go out and scatter the seed, share the message. We trust that God has more people to save and he will do it through those who are surrendered to go next door, to go to the family member or halfway across the country and speak on his behalf. So we look at all of this and we come back to Proverbs 3, 5, because in moments like these, we are called to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. And we don't lean on our own understanding. We lean on God's understanding who has a plan for the church, who has a plan for our lives, who has a plan for the lost. And we trust that God has a plan to build his church. We trust that God has a plan to send out ambassadors with the truth. We trust that God has a plan to bring in more lost people to himself. And that's why any of us should go. And perhaps this morning, God is also tapping others 
and beginning a process where you might go to Utah or God is tapping you where you might go to your family member or your coworker. Why do we go and why should we rally around Luke and Karen this morning as a pastor of our church who's being sent out? We go because we trust God. We keep coming back and saying, okay, God, we trust you completely. And then we're thankful for it and we wait and see what God's going to do in all of it. So let's pray.